0: Well, there was a time uh, before I was married, I was what you would call a bachelor, and uh, I was not married yet. This was probably a couple years before my wife and I had even met, and uh, bachelors just do bachelor things, and so one day, I'm in my kitchen, I used to live over off of C Street in a little duplex, and uh, I just start smelling a smell. I'm thinking, this is weird. I I don't think there's any rotting vegetables or old fruit that I'm aware of. And so for, I'm trying to think back, it was probably at least a week, this smell continued to progress and get worse and worse. And I'm thinking where in the, and I'm looking in cupboards and I just can't find it. And so I kind of feel helpless, you know, trash is taken out. What do you do? You move down the list, you know, and, uh, I got wise and I opened up the top over the hood, over the um, the stove top, I had a sack of potatoes in there and immediately the smell is wafting. So I pull out the sack of potatoes and I don't know if you ever, some of you maybe are knowing where I'm gonna go with this. I don't know if you've left potatoes for a long time, more than a couple weeks. They turn into uh, like liquid. It was gnarly. So I I pulled out the potatoes, and they literally leak all over the hood and the stove. It was so bad that even I'm a smeller, so I'm, like, interested. Like, this smells so bad. I cleaned it all off with bleach, and even afterwards, the metal smelt like rot, potato rot. So if you want a little science project, you know, in the backyard or whatever, just leave a sack of potatoes, and uh, they will turn to mush. But what happened? I didn't touch or deal with the potatoes for weeks and weeks and weeks, and they rotted away. And this is the same with our sin, with sin in general, whether that be in a nation, a culture, a company, a family, individually. If left untouched, our sin progressively gets worse and worse, not better and better. And so this is what we're going to be thinking about today in our text, that we're going to learn three things about the progression of sin if left untouched. And this is among the first humans, but consequently us too, because we're a part of the human race. And so this is our story as well. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 4. And if you're new to the Bible, uh, the book of Genesis is the first book. It actually means the book of beginnings And so Genesis chapter 4, we're going to pick up in verse 17. Last week, if you were with us, you'll remember that this guy Cain, who is the son of Adam and Eve, had just killed his brother Abel, murdered his brother, and then he's essentially exiled from the presence of the Lord, and he settles in this land called Nod, which literally means the land of wandering. It's a great word picture for sin and its consequences in our life. Uh, So let's go ahead and pray first, and then we're going to work through, again, three things about the progression of sin. Let's pray. Father, this morning, we as your people humble ourselves under the authoritative word. Lord, we believe that when your word is opened, you yourself are speaking. So, Lord, we see this as a holy moment This entire Sunday morning is a holy moment. Lord, we pray that you would bless the reading and teaching of your word. Grant us eyes to see, ears to hear. Oh God, how we need to listen to you. Help, Lord. Soften our hearts. Father, I pray for those this morning that are weary and discouraged and tired of their sin. God, would you give them hope? Lord, I pray for those who are wrestling with ongoing sin in maybe a family situation or at work, whatever it would be. Lord, I pray that you would give us all hope in our situations. Lift our spirits this morning. Teach us your word now in Jesus' name. Amen. So first we're gonna see today that the progression of sin is hidden with innovation. The progression of sin is first of all hidden with innovation. Look with me in verse uh, 17. Well first before we get there, let me kind of introduce this idea. The progression of sin is hidden with innovation. Human innovation is actually a good thing. We were meant to take the raw materials of this world, the Garden of Eden, and to shape and form them into something useful. A lot of times we think of the Garden of Eden as kind of like um, a park with walkways and swing sets and shade trees and hammocks, but it was not this way. It was the wild. Think about it like the giant redwoods. Beautiful, but needing to be tamed. So this is how God created us. It's part of the the cultural mandate that he gave us in Genesis 1:28. I want you to rule over my creation, which is to take it, take the raw materials and make houses and cities and create things. This is a part of the way that God made us. So human innovation is a good thing, but what we're gonna see is that we have a tendency, these people have a tendency to hide their own sin and the progression of sin under the surface with innovation, creativity, ingenuity. So look with me in verse 17. We'll see a few different ways that these original humans were innovating. It says in verse 17, Cain had relations with his wife, and she conceived and gave birth to Enoch, not the Enoch that's going to come up in chapter chapter 5. And he built a city and called the name of the city Enoch after the name of his son. So here we have the innovation of a city first city, it was probably a small city with a few structures, enough to call it a city, you know, maybe a, a Trader Joe's and a Dutch bro's and a couple things to kind of make it feel like its own little town. Kind of cool. And so here they are innovating. Look with me in verse 18. It says, now to Enoch was born Irad, and Irad became the father of Meheuajel, and Meheuajel became the father of Methushel. If you're looking for some good kid names, here they are, okay? These are tricky. Became the father of uh, Methuselah, and Methuselah became the father of Lamech. And we're going to think a lot about Lamech this morning in particular. Verse 19 says, Lamech took to himself two wives, not just one, but two. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other, Zillah. So this is interesting. Uh, (laughs) There's this tendency to take God's design and twist it, Here we see humans first twisting God's design of marriage. What's better than one wife? Two, right? Uh, Some of you who are married are thinking, I don't know. I think one spouse is probably enough. Uh, (laughs) But this is what we do as humans. We take God's good design and twist it. And, And so this is polygamy, and this actually is a lot of the The stories, particularly in the Old Testament, a lot of the men and women had multiple spouses, multiple partners. And because of that, there's brokenness and sin that comes with that. When we step out of God's design in general, um, but in particular for sexuality, um, the Lord does not bless it. And in the West, polygamy uh, polygamy isn't very popular, but things like same-sex attraction or twisting of roles of husband and wife. Transgenderism, living with a partner before marriage, and sex outside of marriage. These are very popular, and it's all taking God's design of marriage and adding to it, twisting it, and it, it ends in, in brokenness. And so they're kind of innovating on marriage, if you will. And then in verse 20, uh, pick up with me in verse 20, it says, Ada gave birth to Jabel. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. So here we have farming innovation. Um, To dwell in tents, uh, scholars think, is probably speaking of nomadic living. This was the original minimalist life. You know, you had your stuff in a tent, and you can move uh, really easily. Yesterday, my wife and I moved from Ashland here, and with the uh, help from some really good friends, it it went quick, but it is tough moving, and I I envy the nomadic lifestyle now. I'm thinking, can we go to the minimalist approach? I don't know. Anyways... Uh, but there are also um, probably animal breeding going on here. It says they have livestock. If you remember, Abel had sheep, but livestock probably entails more than sheep. Maybe cattle, maybe donkeys, maybe even camel. So here there's like specific, intentional animal breeding. That's innovative. That's creative. Verse 21, his brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and the pipe. And this is interesting, here's the innovation of music. They're already playing music. Isn't it interesting? A lot of our science books and history books make it seem that we were in caves for thousands of years trying to figure out how to do all these things. And right out of the bat, the first generations are creative, there's culture, there's art, there's music. And this was particularly a musical family. Do you know families who are musical? Where like every kid plays at least one or two instruments? Oh, I just play the violin. My brother plays everything else. Like, get over yourself. You're, mus- you're you know, you're musical, <laughs> all right? So here's a musical family. They were known for that. But, but interesting that they have these instruments. Uh, the lyre, it just, in your translation, I think the NIV says stringed instruments. So it's kind of the harp or the guitar or something like that, kind of interesting. And the pipe was like a flute or some kind of a wind instrument. So really cool. The original humans are already creating music. Verse 22 as for Zillah, she also gave birth to Tubulcane, the forger of all implements of bronze and iron. And the sister of Tubulcane was Nema. So here's the innovation of forging. They're, they're taking the raw materials of the earth and making metal and actually using them for, um, probably would turn into not just farming equipment, but swords and weapons of, of war, unfortunately. So in, in summary, we see construction farming, music, even culture, art, and forging innovation. Yet behind all of this innovation, as we're going to see, especially in the next verses, there's this decay. Think about the potatoes. There's a decay and a rot of sin underneath the surface, behind the cupboard doors, that's being disguised with all this great human innovation. Is there anything wrong with human human innovation? No. But it's really covering the real issue. One theologian said that Cain's family is a microcosm. Its pattern of technical prowess and moral fail- failure is that of humanity. So there's technical advances, and yet there's still failure underneath the surface. In thinking about the progression of sin being hidden with innovation, I think about Las Vegas. You ever been to Las Vegas? Kind of a fun place to pass through. I've been through a few times as a kid, as a um, family vacations and stuff like that. But Las Vegas is a hub for innovation. Let me just rattle off some of the fun facts of Las Vegas. Las Vegas has millions of lights, and it's actually considered the brightest spot on the earth. Did you know that? Kind of interesting. Vegas is home to over half of the 20 largest casinos in the world. Interesting. At 1149 feet, the stratosphere, you've probably seen this, is the highest viewing tower in the US and second tallest west of the Mississippi. Listen to this last one. About 41 million people visit every year, bringing in an average of $100 billion of annual revenue. Yet, in all of this innovation, this creativity, this thriving on the surface, the lights, the sparkle, the rot and decay of the progression of sin is growing evermore. Drug trafficking, prostitution, gambling, both legal and illegal, sex trafficking, prostitution, violence, gangs. So from the surface, it looks great, but there's, the decay and progression of sin under the surface, and not just Las Vegas, but really to span out the entire world is this way. We have more technology than we've ever had. We're more advanced as a culture and society than we've ever been. And yet, look at all the sin. And we just put on the, the fifth rover onto Mars, and we still have the decay of sin that continues under the surface. Uh, Just to think about a little bit in our culture, and this isn't to pick on our culture or to say those guys out there, but just to think about the reality of this. Our schools are putting in sexualized curriculum for our kids to learn, where the job of the parents is to teach those things, but now we're hiring it out to our schools to do that. The LBGQT plus agenda is being forced on us. Corrupt, power-hungry governments are overreaching into our communities and our schools, our churches, our families. And then, again, not not to mention our own sin. So under all this advancement, all our iPhones, all our technology, all our video games, this progression of sin is still there. And even as Christians, this is kind of where I want to hone in. Even as Christians, we can hide our sin with innovation with creativity, with ingenuity. How many of us have Instagrams or social media platforms that look amazing on the outside, right? Our vacations are perfect. Every meal is flawless. And yet behind the scenes, our family is falling apart, right? Or maybe we busy ourselves with with projects around the house. I'm going to fix that. I'm going to get that together. I'm going to put this new craft together, whatever. And it's all an attempt to hide the broken relationship, the strained relationship, the hidden sin that no one knows about. We can hide ourselves with these things, can't we, church? Maybe it's getting lost in the newest fiction novel or a game of Fortnite or another video game just to hide the shame of our sin that our parents don't know about. Why? Why do we do this as humans? It's fig leaves. Actually, there was, I almost brought it as a pop, a, a prop in the office. We have a fiddle leaf fig tree. And this morning, a, a fig leaf fell off of it. And uh, I didn't do it. But anyways, <laughs> if you'll remember, Adam and Eve, when they sinned, what did they do? They, they hid themselves from the Lord and they covered themselves with fig leaves. They, they, they were ashamed because of their sin. Why do we do this? Why do we hide ourselves in the busyness and the projects and in the Instagrams? Why do we do this? It's because we're ashamed of our sin. It, it creates a nakedness, and we don't want anyone to know about it, not even God, even though He's right there in the garden with us. So here's just one point of application here confession. Confession is a, almost a spiritual discipline as a, as a fellowship, as Christians, that we have lost and forgotten about. When we confess to God and to others, it says, God, I'm aware that you've already covered my shame. You've already taken care of and atoned for my sin. You've made garments for me, and I'm going to bring this into the light. I'm not going to allow my Instagram to make it look like I don't have sin in my life. So I'm going to confess my sin to God. 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we say, God, I believe the gospel. You've already made a way for me to be atoned and, and cleansed. And I believe that. And so I'm coming in faith that you are faithful and righteous to forgive me of my sin. And I believe that you can forgive me. Now, here's the part. I think we all are comfortable with that. Confession of God. Oh, yeah. But what about confessing sin to a friend? What about confessing sins and, and rebellion done to a friend or a family member, a spouse, to say, hey, I've messed up. Not only, God, do I confess my sin, but I want to bring it completely into the light. I'm not going to hide this thing. I'm going to bring it out into the light and share that with people who know me and love me. Maybe there's one person Maybe there's one person in your life who you say, I can be honest with and share my sin. Hey, I've been struggling here. Or your temptation to sin. Sometimes that's a a better way to go about it. How about sharing before you actually sin? I've been battling this. I need prayer. Help me. I'm struggling here. And again, this is a call to believe the gospel. He's already covered me. He's already covered you. You, you can't out the grace of God. You can't out the cross of Christ. And so God, I believe the gospel and I'm not gonna hide in, in behind my stuff but I'm gonna go out and trust that you love me. You've already covered me. If you're here and you don't know Jesus and, and you're resonating with some of what I'm saying, that my life is filled with innovation. I, I busy myself with things. I, I try and bury my emotions, my hurts, the sin that not only I have done but those who have done it to me I just want to invite you to step into the grace of God today that he can cover your sin. He can cover the embarrassment, the shame, the guilt that you feel because of your sin. And he will forgive you today if you believe in the gospel and trust him. So the progression of sin, as we see in this text, is hidden with innovation. But I think even more aggressive and maybe subtle, the progression of sin is hidden with celebration. The progression of sin is, is celebrated, and that's what we're going to see in our, our second point. Look with me in verse 23 through 24. This passage shows the, the snowball effect of sin, and this is actually where I got our, our big idea, our big principle this morning, the progression of sin, that where Adam and Eve are ashamed because of sin, and they hide because of sin, Cain is angry because of his sin, Lamech celebrates his sin. He's proud of it. No shame. I'm not even angry about it. I'm just proud. Look with me in verse 23. Lamech said to his two wives, and this is sort of like a, theologians think, kind of a song, like a taunt. Ada and Zillah, listen to my voice. So he gathers his wives together. I got a song. I'm going to sing a song. I've been working on this song, you know. Listen to my voice, you wives of Lamech. See, you just hear the pride and the arrogance in his voice, can't you? Give heed to my speech, for I have killed a man for wounding me and a boy for striking me. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. Can't you just hear the arrogance? So verse 23, much more than killing his brother like Cain did, Lamech celebrates his willingness to kill even a little boy. Like, I've killed a little boy for striking me. And not just for, like, murdering or attempting to murder him. It was like a punch on the arm. Did you hear just the intensification where Cain was grieved over it and he had to go from the presence of the Lord? Lamech is celebrating it. It's just this intense, over-the-top celebration of sin. In verse 24, if God was going to avenge Cain sevenfold of his murders. Remember, God said, I'm going to protect you. I'm going to put my mark on you. And if someone attempts your murder or murders you, I'm going to avenge them sevenfold. So, if God was going to avenge, uh, avenge Cain's murder sevenfold, then Lamech would avenge for himself 77fold. And not only this, Lamech is willing to kill someone, not for someone trying to kill him, but a mere flesh wound. It's like you picture a kid coming up to you on the, the playground and like pinching you and running away and then you go home and plot his murder. You know, I'm going to destroy him. This is what Lamech is doing. It's totally disproportionate. One theologian said that Lamech shows himself thereby to be more vengeful in his self-defense than God himself. Wow. And ironically, this celebration of of sin, this song of pride and celebration, it's the last thing that we hear from the, the family lineage of Cain. They just kind of disappear. They go off the map at this point. And I think that's the intention of Moses when he's writing this. There's no more to be heard about this family line. And I think for for us personally, as I was thinking about this idea of the celebration of sin, for for maybe us as Christians, we wouldn't sing a song about our sin. You know, uh, maybe some of you would. I hope not. But we wouldn't sing a song about our sin. But maybe we would say something like, hey, this is just who I am. I'm just a sarcastic person. I just tend to be a loud person. This is how my family was and so this is who I am. So we kind of excuse our sin. Have you ever said something like that? This is just who I am. You know, I'm just a a lazy person or whatever your deal is, whatever your struggle with sin is, we can, uh, as my friend Zav said, as we were talking over this sermon this last week, we baptize our brokenness. Ah, just who I am. And now there's something to say, like, this is a little bit of how God wired me. This is a little bit of my spiritual temperament. Like, we get that. But to justify it and even to celebrate it. Or maybe when we share a story of our past life before we knew Jesus, we can kind of laugh at our sin like it wasn't a big deal. And we're not grieved over it, but we kind of think it was funny. Uh, I know I can struggle with this. I have a, a past before Jesus. And to tell a story of before knowing Jesus without scoffing or celebrating in some way how cool my sin was or how awesome that was. What a shame. There was a point in the history of the nation of Israel where it got so bad. If you know anything about your Bible and the Old Testament specifically, the nation of Israel got so bad that God says that they forgot how to blush. Listen, listen to this verse in Jeremiah 6. Verse 15 says, were they ashamed because of the abomination they have done? They were not even ashamed at all. They did not even know how to blush. What a gnarly thing it is when a culture doesn't know how to blush over sin. I promise you I'm not trying to bash our nation or our culture today. But I just feel like we need to kind of agree, to agree that our culture is at a bad place. Our nation has gotten to a point where we have become so comfortable with the progression of sin that not only are we comfortable with it, we celebrate it. It's in your face. You better like what we like. That's what our culture is saying. Calling evil good and good evil. Isaiah 520 says, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Like Lamech, who substitute darkness for light. And light for darkness. And in America, as Christians, if if you're living in salt and light in this world, maybe you've been told this. You just need to be tolerant, which doesn't mean gracious and respectable and logical and able to have conversations and still disagree and love one another as it used to mean. Now it means you just need to listen to what I say, and if you don't like it, then go somewhere else, right? It seems like everyone is being tolerated except for Christians, who make exclusive claims about morality and salvation. There's one way to God. So what do we do? What are we to do as ambassadors of King Jesus and messengers of the gospel? Like how do we live in this culture? What's our role? Do we go buy guns and more ammo and stock up? Do we, do we create a bunker and buy some food? Some of you are thinking I just got it on Amazon, it's on its way. <laughs> Ugh. They're not saying those things are bad. I'm just asking the question. What are we to do as, as God's people? Because can we be honest? This culture is kind of gnarly right now. And We're all wondering, like, where is this going to go? What's going to happen? I don't know. No, just kidding. God's word gives us an answer. Jesus, Lord of all the earth, says, you are the salt of the earth. Let that penetrate your soul, Christian. Yes. Look at me. You are the salt of the earth. Amen. Wow. Yes. And Jesus doesn't mean you kind of are. I mean, you're kind of pathetic, but you know, you're, <laughs> you're the salt that like, well, Peter, well, okay. No, he means it. But if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Hear this again. You are the light of the world. Wow, that is amazing. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket. But on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. So what are we to do? We're to be salt and light we're meant to preserve this culture. We're meant to be salty, which which there's a lot of uh, understandings of what salt did in that world, but preservation was one of the key ones. We're meant to preserve our culture and we're to shine the light of God's truth into our world. This is what we're called to do. And this almost this is where we get uncomfortable. Everyone's like, "Yeah, salt and light. I'm I'm in it. Yes and amen." This almost always means loving confrontation with our culture loving pushback it's time we as christians learn to stand for the gospel of the lord jesus christ he is the lord and king of the universe i want us to be strengthened with that it's easy to kind of just think well i'm gonna go get my guns and go hunker down but what about the salt and light stuff And we see this in the Bible with men like Noah, Moses, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Jesus, the apostles, and all throughout church history. It looks like pushing back on culture. And maybe that looks like when your biology teacher is forcing evolution down your throat. You say, hey, can we just have a conversation about that? I don't actually think that lines up with reality. Maybe it looks like marching at a pro-life rally. Why not? We love babies. This might look like upholding the word of God as authoritative and not being embarrassed about it when we're having a philosophical conversation at the water cooler. Yeah, I actually believe that this is the inspired word of God. I'm not embarrassed about it. I actually believe that the Lord Jesus Christ is the God-man who came and died for sinners, rose again, ascended, is gonna come back as the uh, victorious king. I'm not embarrassed about it. Amen, church? This definitely should look like speaking the word of God when opportunities arise with our family, friends, neighbors, to share the love of Jesus with our, our, our culture. So I just want to be thinking about that. How do we operate in a culture that is in our face? Well, we serve as salt and light. We love people. We look for gospel opportunities. And we stand firm on the truth of the word of God. Amen? Amen. So the progression of sin is hidden with innovation and is celebrated. Is there any good news here, Cody? Is there any gospel? Is there any hope? Imagine if I just said, Amen. <laughs> just, we just called it a day. Well, there is hope. Uh, the progression of sin is always met with good news. The progression of sin is always met with good news. Look with me in verse 25 Adam had relations with his wife again. And she gave birth to a son and named him Seth. For she said, God has appointed me another offspring in place of Abel, for Cain killed him. So this is really interesting. This word offspring in verse 25, when she said, God's given me another offspring, is the exact same word that God used in Genesis chapter 315 in what theologians call the proto or the first good news In Genesis 3.15, God had promised Eve this. Actually, he's speaking to the enemy. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed or your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise you on the heel or on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. So she has this promise that you will have an offspring. Someone's gonna come from your line and is gonna take care of this enemy. It's a promise that she's holding on to. Well, guess what? Cain just killed her other offspring. So she's thinking, Adam and Eve are probably not thinking that Abel, or excuse me, Cain is the hope of the world. They're probably not thinking that, you know, Cain is the offspring that's going to come and bring victory over the enemy. And so when she's naming Seth, Seth, I think she's at least thinking that from this line will come the offspring that will conquer our enemy. Maybe she even thought this was the one who was going to come and conquer the enemy this was the offspring but from this point on in our bibles god is tracing this offspring the seed all the way from genesis three fifteen, the proto-euangelion the first appearance of the gospel all the way through all the themes all the different books all the genres all the stories all the narratives maybe you feel kind of confused at the old testament just if we're going to go back 30,000 feet and look at the Old Testament, it's tracing and tracking the coming of the offspring, which is Jesus Christ. He was born in Bethlehem. He lived a sinless life. He died for sinners. He rose again, and he's coming soon. This is the, this is the offspring that is being talked about. Look with me in verse 26. And by the way, that's good news. Verse 26 To Seth, to him, also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. Then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. This is an interesting phrase. Uh, Apparently, this is the first time since Adam that people began to call on the name of the Lord. Some kind of prayer, public worship, some kind of a gathering maybe even, that men were known for calling on the, the name of the Lord because of this, this family lineage. And so there's good news. At the end of this ugly, dark progression of sin in Lamech and in Cain, this whole family, there's good news of an offspring that's gonna come. So when I just ask the so what question. What do we do with this? Well, this progression of sin being met with the gospel, with good news, is a pattern that we see all throughout the Bible, I debated telling again and again all the different narratives, all the different scripture that talks about the darkness of sin, and then always there's the hope of the gospel right after it. But the entire Bible, this is the story of the word of God, all the way up to Jesus. Our, our Bible is funneling us towards Jesus Christ and his coming. That's the point of the Bible. It's one story, 66 books, all about one person, and that is Jesus Christ, and this, after all, is the way that Jesus read his Bible. Did you know that? It says in Luke chapter 24, verse 25 and 27, just to give a little context, Jesus had risen from the dead like he said he would. And then he is on his way into, um, to uh, Emmaus, and he meets these two guys who were his disciples, and they were prevented from being able to see him. And he starts walking along with them, and he joins their conversation. And he kind of acts like he doesn't know what's going on. Do you remember this story at the end of Luke? doesn't know what's going on. He acts like he doesn't know what's going on. And they actually say, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? Jesus, do you, you didn't get the social media posts. You didn't hear about it. And after explaining to them, like, yeah, we had this guy named Jesus and he came and we thought he was going to be the Messiah, the offspring that was supposed to come, like an usher in this new kingdom. But then he got crucified and he's, he's dead in the grave, rotting away. But he says to them, O foolish men, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ, the offspring, to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? I love this. Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, that's a shorthand way of saying the entire Old Testament, He explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. As you've probably heard it say, this was a Bible study you'd want to be at. Jesus is saying, yeah, you see that? That was me. You see that? That points to me. You see that? That's supposed to remind you of grace and gospel and sacrifice. This is all about me. And so this is the way that we need to learn to read the Bible. So just super simple application. Read your Bibles with a gospel lens. If you're anything like me, sometimes the Bible can be confusing. I'm reading through Ezekiel right now. Give that one a spin. There's a lot going on in there. But we need to learn to put on the gospel lens to say that the whole Bible is about the offspring, which is Jesus Christ, and this is the good news. So every time we're reading the scripture, we're asking questions like, how does this point to my need for a savior? How does God's Grace get displayed in this story, which ultimately culminates in Jesus Christ. How is God's judgment manifested here, which reminds us of the return of Jesus in judgment against his enemies? How is this text about sacrifice, about prophets, about priests and kings? How does this all remind me of Jesus? How does this point me and funnel me towards the gospel? If we read the Bible like a a rule book, a moral guide, a moral compass, we're reading it wrong. And I know the sentiment, you know, it's kind of my compass, it's my, my guide. But at the end of the day, the, the Bible is to show you, you can't do it. <laughs> we can't do it. We are in desperate need of this offspring. We need help. And so when reading the Bible, we're saying, okay, God, I'm going to put on my gospel lens. And I'm believing that this text I'm reading at 630 in the morning with my coffee in my hand, whatever that looks like for you is meant to bring me to Jesus afresh. And I think it's just a fresh, helpful way of reading the Bible. Sometimes reading the Bible can get tired and old and crunchy and dry. But where you come with gospel lens and say, I want to see Jesus in the text, help me to be reminded of my need and my love for Jesus this morning. So I think that's helpful. Secondly, and lastly, this, we need to learn to preach good news to ourselves. If sin is always met with good news, God is always gospeling our situations, we need to learn to preach the gospel to ourselves. To say, Cody, no matter how hard today is, God is for you. He loves you. He sent his son Jesus to die for you. He protects you. He cares for you. He sympathizes with you. He knows your weaknesses. He's your counselor, He's your friend. God is your dad. Holy Spirit's your comforter, whatever. Some piece of the gospel that you can say, I need to latch onto this thing. I think I coined a term yesterday. We'll see if it sticks. Gospel Klingon? Is that, is that weird? Yesterday I said it. I'm like, that kind of works. Gospel Klingon? We can try it out. We'll see. But we need to learn to preach the gospel to ourselves. When we sin again. Here I am in the same habitual sin that I've been wrestling with again and again. And it makes me want to cry. When suffering presses on us, when the cancer sets in, when others reprove us and we want to get defensive, gosh, take all of life and every day just say, okay, I want to preach the gospel to myself in this situation. It is so helpful. Maybe you memorize gospel scripture. Maybe you listen to the Bible on your, way to the work, on, on your way to work, or you're reading a gospel-centered book. Whatever it is, to just get our minds around the gospel and to preach it to ourself every day. Lastly, if you are not sure about Christianity or you're new to the Bible, not sure about this whole Jesus thing, no matter how much your life is hidden with innovation, Maybe you're even proud about your sin, your rebellion, your lifestyle. You celebrate it. If you're being honest with yourself, you know that deep down there's just rot and decay. For those of us who have trusted in Christ, you know that that's true even with Him. There's still this like decay, this inner man thing that's being purged away. We're still wrestling with this. But if you don't know Jesus, today is the day of salvation. Come to Him, to trust Him, that He actually has sent His offspring, this King, this Messiah King, who came to die for your sins and rise again, that He will cover your shame. He will cover your sin. He will deal with it. You can't out-sin the grace of God. And that's, that's the invitation for you today. So the progression of sin is hidden with innovation. The progression of sin is celebrated and is, lastly, it's met with good news. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that in our culture, in our families, and in our own individual lives, no matter how chaotic they look, you are king, and you're working out salvation, sanctification in our lives. Lord, teach us to be a people of the gospel. Teach us, Lord, to remind ourselves of these truths, to discipline our minds, to think about the gospel and your good news even when sin is getting out of control in our lives, Lord, that we would bring it back under submission to Christ, confess those things to others, repent and humbly come before you and to take a drink of the gospel again. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.